In 2016, my wife and I received both a confession and a written apology. Seven years earlier, on a Monday morning about 8.20 in the morning, I was informed that I was no longer trustworthy because I wouldn't relay the specifics of a conversation that I had with my wife in private, which frankly was none of anyone else's business. And I remember the moment in chromatic detail. Pressure, manipulation attempts, and threats at retribution quickly followed, and when I didn't give in to the bullying, we should never really give in to bullying, the threats of retribution were made good with false accusations against my character and also our ministry. At one point, a couple points actually, it turned into what I would call slander, which was easily proven false, but for which we also had grounds for legal action. As I, in my own calculations, I think the financial loss to us was just over $100,000. And I was silent through this period until the accusations began to also include my wife, which at point all gloves were off. And I threatened the, or I warned the person and the circle he'd gathered around him that if the slander would continue, I would pursue legal action. For most of the whole time, however, I was silent. Because, and fortunately for me, I had a mentor a number of years earlier, uh, Peter Dahl, who had actually given me a model by which a man of integrity, a Christian man or a woman, should handle this type of character assault, and it's largely to remain silent and trust your future to Jesus Christ. Now, most of you probably don't know Peter Dahl, but fortunately for you and I, God's given us a model in the Psalms and particularly the heart of David, how we should handle verbal assault, character assassination, or whatever else comes our way. And uh, if you're in that camp this morning, if you're one of those persons who is under assault or life's going bad or people are speaking against you, I so much encourage you to go back and listen to Mark's message that he preached on Psalm chapter 3 and learn how to pour out your hurt, your venom towards God, and then learn, learn to trust Him um, how to handle and deal with your enemies. This morning, however, we want to shift it a bit and learn how a man or a woman of integrity responds when you get the letter, when you get the apology, when God begins to deal with those who speak against you, when God begins to judge your enemies and, and, and deal with that type of thing. And, uh, and, and let him do that. So I invite you to turn with me to uh, Psalm chapter 9. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, or uh, pull up your phone because it would be really helpful in this passage, particularly all of our sermons, when, you're, when we're going through it, for you to follow along. So how do you respond when you are vindicated, when you get the letter? Psalm chapter 9. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad. I'll exalt in you. I'll sing praise to your name, O Most High God. When my enemies turn back and fall, they stumble and they perish before your presence. This is the occasion of the psalm. In this particular psalm, something's happened. We don't have the specifics, but David, God's servant, has been vindicated. God has begun to judge his enemies, and he's watching them fall as they retreat from the presence of God. David is watching them stumble and fall. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruin. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has presence. Uh, 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 vanished, sorry. Now you would think, you know, so what did David do? He worshipped. Now you would think that of course we worship when something good happens. No, you've got to understand. In this situation... Worshiping God, turning to God, is both countercultural and counterhuman. 
Because what we really want to do, we want to flaunt it, don't we? We want to post it on social media. We want to post the vindication of God because it feels good. We want everybody to know. In fact, we want to pay the extra $20 post-boosting fee to get to all your friends and everybody else. We want to push out our chest. We want to let people know. We want to revel in it. That's what we typically want to do when we are vindicated. And in so doing, we actually fall prey to the exact same temptation that caused our enemy Satan to lose his place in heaven, pride justification, self-righteousness. You know what I'm talking about. David chose a different route. What's really noteworthy, I was going to say interesting, but interesting is a lame word. What's really noteworthy about David is his consistency. If you, if you, if you read through the Psalms, if you've been with us, here's the deal with King David. Whether he's under attack, whether he's fighting spiritual depression, whether he's, his life is falling apart, he's in physical pain or personal ruin, or when he's on the top of the world watching his enemies suffer and fall, David chooses the same response. David turns to God. I will. It, it's an action. It's not natural. He chooses to worship God in that situation. And David literally flaunts his euphoria over what's happened to God in private. This is an important lesson that I don't think you've ever been taught. I didn't know it till last week, till I did the preparation. When life goes well, when the people you've been praying that God would expose and judge, when God finally begins to judge and expose them, God actually wants us to flaunt our pleasure to Him. It's an answer to prayer. I actually felt guilty at a, at a certain point of receiving the apology because I did feel vindicated, I did feel good, and I kind of felt I shouldn't because, frankly, I'm really not much better than the person who slandered me. I mean, we always think we're better than the people that we're praying that God would judge, but we're really not that better, and I felt a little bit guilty, but God actually wants us, when you're vindicated, when something good happens to you, when your enemies fall, He actually wants us to flaunt that to Him, bring it back to Him in praise. Listen, God, you don't have to hold back. God can handle, God can handle your euphoria. God can handle, He knows how to factor in how much sinfulness you have. God can handle all that. He wants you actually to pour it out to Him in private. Did you get that? Because you and I, we want to let everybody know that we've been vindicated. That's not the appropriate. God wants us to pour it out to him in private. One of my favorite things to do on week six, or sorry, week six, day six of my, my journey, my, my quiet time rhythms. I have my quiet time five out of seven days a week, usually seven out of seven, but five out of seven for sure. On the sixth day, I look back over what God's been speaking to me through my journal, but I also go through the thanks acrostic, and I write down T, what is God, what am I thankful for today? H, how has God helped me this last week in something I didn't even pray about? A, what are the answers to prayer? N, what is something new that I'm looking forward to? K, who's been kind to me this week? I literally go back and I, and I give the praise to God for the good stuff that's happened this last week. Notice what, notice what else David did. It's really, really, I'm going to use the word interesting. If you go back there, he says, I'll give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. He actually says, I'm going to recount all of your miracles, all of the things you've done. So first of all, David, in his praise, he's vindicated. He goes to God, gives incredible thanks and praise to God in private. And then he adds to it and he goes back and he recounts all the other ways that God has come through. God's come through in power. Why is that so important? Because it builds your faith. It builds your faith. It gives you a foundation to pray audacious prayers. And you know that God's coming through and Satan's going to have a harder time taking you out with discouragement. If you're in, in community group this week, and I hope you are, 
In fact, if you're not in community groups, you're only going to get half this message this week. If you're in community groups this week, start preparing because you're going to be given an opportunity to share two or three times what God has come through for you. So recount all the wonderful deeds, the miracles that God's done for you, and you're going to share them. And I don't want some lame things like, you know, God was with me yesterday. Of course he's with you. He lives inside of you. He's got nowhere to go. I mean, he could go somewhere, but he's not going to leave you. I want real prayers. And you're going to share them. You're going to hear how God's come through for, for, uh, for the other people in your community. Recount the miracles of God. A lot of times we only come to God when we're complaining, don't we? This is God. God's teaching us a lesson here. Recount the miracles. Let's go to verse 7 and 9. Continue on. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He's established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. We're going to come back to that in a little while. And then listen to this. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. He is a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who know you. Now, now listen. Um, stronghold. Circle that if you circle stuff in your Bible or circle on your phone. It probably doesn't work. But you get the idea. Stronghold. We usually talk, at least I usually talk about stronghold in the negative. I usually talk about Satan, our enemy. What he wants to do is he wants to gain a stronghold in your life, a stronghold of, through sin, through attitudes or whatever. He gets a, a foothold and then a stronghold in your life through which to control you. I often give this illustration. If the city of Toronto was going to try to take out New York, how would they do it? Would they just kind of walk across the border and try to take, off, take over New York? It would never work. No, the only way Toronto would ever take over New York, if it's even possible, is to get people infiltrate the city, get into positions of power, hopefully even get get into city hall or local government and then begin to influence and control New York without them even knowing it. That's the only possible way, if it's even possible. That's what Satan wants to do in our lives, through sin, through attitudes that we don't deal with. He wants to get a foothold in our life that becomes a stronghold and then he actually controls or influences us. But here, David's talking about building a stronghold through which God can influence you. A stronghold. Now, how in the world do you do that? A stronghold, you know, in your heart, deep in your heart, through which God can help you go through times of trouble and help you uh, defeat some of the temptations we face. How do you do that? Well, one would be Bible memorization, but here's another one that, that comes out in the passage. He says, and those who know your name, those who know your name put their trust in you. Do you know the name of God? Do you even know what that means? About 30 years ago, when I entered into ministry, I, I came across this little study. It's, it says 30 days, the names of God. And you actually walk through and you study the various names of God for 30 days. You know, there's over 100 names by which God is referred to in the Bible. And we don't get that in our North American culture, but in Eastern culture, in Hebrew culture, a name, um, a name reflected a character quality about you, kind of like the name Ken, just so you know, meets handsome, right? You check it out, look it up. No, or just, just look here. I mean, just see that, right? Ken means handsome. You get it. So my parents, you know, they probably waited until I was born and said, handsome, Ken, right? No, they probably didn't. It was just a K name. But when God, God has a name, and as you begin to study his names, you learn things about him, and you begin to pray to that name when you're in a certain situation. For example, Prince of Peace. It's the name of God. When would you pray that? Well, when life's falling apart, wouldn't you? In, again, in community group, this is a shameless plug for community groups, but that's how we disciple, that's how we grow. But you're going to have an opportunity to study 10 names of God plus some of the New Testament ones. Let me just go, go, go over a few of the, the key names of God. Elohim, which means refers to the incredible power and might of God. Yahweh, which simply means I am. 
The story was in um, the story of Moses. He was supposed to go to God's people and uh, and uh, communicate that God had sent him. And Moses said, "What if they ask who sent me? Well, you know, what is your name?" And he just said, "Tell them that I am sent you." Another time before Abraham was, "I am." Think of that eternal God. Simply is in a totally different realm than anyone else, any other being you've ever encountered. I simply am. Just let that wash over you for a minute. I am has spoken to me. Think about how that would affect your long-range planning. What's your long-range planning, 20, 30 years? That's a scratch in God's continuum of eternity. I am. When would you pray to I am? Another name of God, El, El Yon, God Most High, above all rule. How about Abba, Daddy? Daddy. It's the name of God. It's the affectionate name that a little child crawls into the lap of a good daddy. When would you pray that? When everyone else has forsaken you and you're lonely and you don't know how you're going to get through, you crawl, oh, Abba. So Jesus called out to God, his father, Abba. El Shaddai, God Almighty, the one to you find refuge. El Roy, the God who sees, the God who watches over. You know where that one came up originally or first time in Scripture? The God who sees. It was when Hagar, who was being mistreated by Sarah, Abraham, Abraham's wife, mistreated by Sarah, and Hagar actually had it coming. She was kind of annoying. She was flaunting her vindication in, in Sarah's face. And Sarah began treating her poorly. And, and so she ran away, and she was going to die. She has her little child who's going to die, and she's sitting there alone, and God speaks to her, and she calls him the God who sees me. If you're an outcast, you feel like you're an outcast, like no one loves you, like God's forgotten you. God wants you to know, no, I am a God who sees you. And frankly, the Jews probably doesn't want to like that story. Because sometimes the religious don't want God to see those that we don't think are as good as us. But if that's you, Elroy, God who sees or Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. There's a story on that one. I'm not going to get into it. The Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. When did that name come through? When Abraham was about to sacrifice his own son at the last minute, the 11th hour, God came through and he said, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide a way out. The Lord will provide a sacrifice. The Lord will provide what I need. And some of you need to pray to Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Jireh today. Because you're facing financial ruin, you're facing your marriage is falling apart, you're facing whatever it is. Will the Lord provide? Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals me. God knows when we need help, when our bodies are frail. And again, in, in community group this week, you're going to get to study some of those names and some other names. Because it will build your faith. I forgot how, how instrumental that was in building my faith. And who to pray to? God gave us the name so we know more about him. That's how you build a stronghold of faith through which God will control and guide and influence your life. I want to speak to those for a minute, those who are still in the battle. If we look at verses 11 to 14 and then 18, 
David continues in his psalm. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. And then verse 18. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor will not perish forever. I want to give you two, if you're in the heat of the battle right now, I want to give you two promises you can take to the bank. The first promise is in 12, chapter 9, verse 12. God does not ignore, and God does not forget the cries of the afflicted. God does not ignore your cries. God does not ignore the cries of the afflicted. God has not forgotten you. He is the God who sees. In the nation of Israel, for 400 years, we're in slavery, and God comes to Moses and says, Surely I have heard the cries of my people, and I have seen their suffering and their affliction. I don't know why it took 400 years, and neither did the people of Israel probably. I don't know why it took six years for us to get the written apology. God knows. Maybe I had to develop my character. Maybe the other person had to develop their character. We don't always know the waiting period why, but do not allow the devil to put a lie in your heart that God does not see, that God does not know. No, it breaks his heart. Of course, he loves you deeply. And one of my favorite stories in Scripture is actually in the book of Acts, chapter 7. And it's the stoning, it's the execution of a man named Stephen who was executed simply for doing righteous things and for God working through him. He was executed for that. Um, and what he said was in, in Acts chapter 7, verse 54 to 60 is the story. Again, you can study in community groups. But it, right when he was being executed, as he was dying, it says, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God the Father. Every other time in Scripture, Jesus is described in the throne room of heaven. He is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. But when his servant is under attack, is dying, is suffering for the name of Jesus, Jesus is standing at the right hand of God the Father. And I know maybe I'm milking that passage too much. But I know that God has spoken to me through that passage and he's given me courage to know that when I'm under attack, when my heart is right and things are falling apart around me, or maybe my heart isn't right, and I'm calling out to God and I'm giving praise and I'm asking God for a vision, that Jesus is interceding and standing at the right hand of God the Father. God is not a God who's forgotten you. And if you believe that, Satan has put a lie, a stronghold in your life, and God's message to you today is that I am a God who sees and I can do something about it. Promise two is God will judge those who persecute you. God will punish. He will balance the books and he will take vengeance on those who wrongly accuse, persecute, and mock you. Verse seven, and, uh, verse seven and eight, sorry. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness and he judges the people with uprightness. His request is that we leave that to him. I'm going to read to you from Romans 12. Another passage of Scripture. Maybe you've heard it before. Romans chapter 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. No, I want to curse them. No, God says don't curse them. There's a reason. There's a number of reasons. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but, 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 but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own eyes because you're not that bright. 
That's my paraphrase there. <laughs> Never be wise in your own eyes. Repay no one evil for evil. Repay no one evil for evil. No, but not even, the, no one even, no, but this, no one evil for evil for evil. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, as far as it depends on you. If possible, as far as it depends on you. And sometimes it's more possible than we think. Live at peace with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself. Never avenge, never avenge yourself. Never avenge yourself. Never avenge yourself. But leave it to God's wrath. The New International Version says, but leave room, make room for God's wrath. For vengeance is mine, it is written, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals in his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Listen, if you want to continue to take vengeance on your, your neighbor, on people who've hurt you, you are not leaving room for God's wrath. In fact, you might be circumventing what God wants to do because you're stepping into the place of God. And in so doing, you're becoming as evil as the person that you're praying that God would judge. Is it difficult? Yes. If it was easy, anyone could do it. And for this, of course, we need the power of the Holy Spirit living in our lives. We need brothers and sisters in our lives. Now, don't get me wrong. We're all supposed, also supposed to pick up the sword, or we're supposed to pick up and protect those vulnerable around us. But this is talking about accusations against me. And I'm not trying to be self-righteous, but you notice in my story, when the slander began to include my wife, the gloves were off. And I was no longer silent. And I know it sounds self-righteous, but I think that God led, me, led us to do that. I'm going to go back to 9, verse 8 for a minute in Psalm chapter 9. 9, verse 8 says, He judges the world with righteousness, and he judges the peoples with uprightness. The actual word there is equity. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about God judging in righteousness, fairness, and equality? I feel a bit nervous. You know, we all talk, we always want fairness, right? We always want it to be fair, do we? Have you ever noticed that we only call out to God and demand fairness when we're comparing up? We only call out to God and demand fairness when we're comparing ourselves with someone who is more, when someone who's more successful than we are, who gets away or apparently gets away with more sin than we do, with someone who's healthier than we are. But what would, what would it look like for a minute if you called out to God for, to judge with fairness and equity with people who are in impoverished countries? What would it look, would it look like if you called out for, uh, for fairness financially? Because if you have a Canadian passport or an American passport, and if you have change in your pocket, and if you bathe in drinking water, which you do, you are the top 10% of the world financially. What would happen if we called out to God for fairness? Understand, God is a God. He's also hearing the cries of the people who live on the garbage dumps. He's hearing the cries of the mother who walks 15 miles to get dirty water for her children. He's hearing all the cries. And we always call it to God just for fairness when we're looking up. If you were crying out for health fairness, what about if, uh, would you cry out for health fairness if you considered the saints of God who are trusting God who are right now fighting cancer? If you were crying out for fairness and for advancement in social status and promotions in your company, what would happen if you compared that to the fathers, the dads who are martyred for their faith? See, we don't really want fairness. In fact, if we really consider a God who judges with equity, 
I think we've got to become a little bit more humble. And here's a hint. Don't pray so much. Don't be so quick to pray for fairness and equity. Pray for mercy and compassion and the courage to steward the blessings that God has given us because we are the wealthiest people in this world. We have health care. We have opportunities. We have jobs. We have relationships. And I know some of our relationships are falling apart, but we still have other stuff. There's some people that are in a jail. And again, I know I'm over-sensationalizing it, but frankly, we're over-sensationalized the other way. I'm going to talk to skeptics for a minute because we really haven't addressed you yet. <laughs> skeptics, just so you know, skeptics are affectionate way. Uh, you're, you're, you've been invited here to church. Uh, someone invited you to Village Church. You're a skeptic. I'm a skeptic sometimes. We're all skeptics. Do we really trust God in these areas? So we're glad you're here. In fact, Village Church is designed so that people who don't know Jesus Christ personally can come and hang out with us and watch us to see if we're actually any different. Verses 15 to 17, I think, addresses you. The nations have sunk in the pit that they've made, in the net that they've hid. Um, they, they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He's executed judgment. The wicked are snarled in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. Now, who do you think God's referring to when he talks about the wicked? You think he's talking about really bad people? Really sinful people? No? Because all of us are kind of in that package, aren't we? When God refers to the wicked, he's referring to people who reject him. I know the word sounds kind of negative, but that's how God feels because he loves you so much. And it's very hurtful to him when we reject. Let me just give you what we call the gospel in just a, in a few seconds. Romans chapter 3 says, all of us have screwed up. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I don't have to convince anyone in this room here that we've screwed up. We've messed up. We know that. Romans 6, 6, 20, uh, 6, 23 says, And the wages of sin, the results of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life, the result of sin is death. We, we know that too. It, it destroys our relationship, destroys our hearts. It, it hurts. It, it, it brings death. It brings separation, all that kind of stuff. And then it says, But God demonstrated his love towards us in this, that while we were still sinners, that that's all of us, while we were still wicked, God commands his love towards us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, Jesus, God loves us so much that he doesn't want this distance between us because all of us deserve hell so he sent his son that's the price that paid for our wickedness he sent his son Jesus to take care of our sin problem and when we reject that that's wicked it's rejecting what Jesus had to do to make it possible for you to have a relationship with God and that's why he created two places after we die. One's heaven in his presence and one is hell or Sheol. And this, in this case, referred to as Sheol. And, and people say, well, that's kind of unfair. And maybe you don't even believe in heaven and hell. Well, if you don't believe in hell, that doesn't change the temperature. If you don't believe in heaven, it doesn't mean it's not there. In fact, hell is simply a place that God created for people that don't want a relationship with him. I know it's an ugly place, but that's, that's the reality. Life without a God filling our hearts Loving us, giving us the courage and strength, the forgiveness, the, the release from guilt. That's an ugly place. Hell's just a lot worse because there's no chance to redeem. So if you're a skeptic, understand the gospel, the message, the good news is that you don't have to be distant from God. Everything we've done has been forgiven. If you reject that, we don't really have much to offer you, and neither does God. You know, I was talking with a person the other day um, in a motorcycle shop, and uh, she just mentioned that her 
comes from a family, there's a number of atheists there, so I wrongly thought that she was an atheist too. And I just said, wow, one of us is gonna be really surprised when we die. And she said that she's not actually an atheist. In fact, uh, she's probably gonna come and listen to this. But a lot of us think that if we don't believe that we'll stand before God after we die, then it won't happen. But we don't create reality in our minds. And so one of the most important things for us to do while we're on earth, while we have life, is to figure out, do, is there really a God? Not do I believe there's a God, but is there realistic evidence, reason to believe that there's a God who created me, who's got a purpose for my life, and whom I will one day stand before? There's, uh, if you're interested in that, we've got some books called The Problem of Gods out at the, the Connect desk in the lobby, and you can pick that up and talk about a number of that stuff. But we're so glad you're here, and you can even join one of the community groups and talk about all that. I want to move and kind of wrap this down. And I want to talk to both Christians and skeptics as I wrap this down. Because some of us Christians also should take a look of whether or not we really believe. I want to return to verse 1 and 2 of Psalm chapter 9. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. With my whole heart. God actually expects more than just our words on Sunday. When God comes through in our lives, he saves us. He comes through, he answers our prayer. The appropriate response is, I will give thanks with my whole heart. My whole heart. Not just my Sunday hour and a half. This involves my attitudes. This involves my recreation. This involves my motorcycles. This involves my, my, my relationships. This involves my money. This involves my time. By my whole heart, because a lot of us have just added God to our lives. And if that describes you, write down Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. If you're one of those persons who, who thinks they're a Christian, maybe you are, but you've just kind of added God to your own life, and you're going to live however you want, never really giving him your whole heart, really study, read Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46, because maybe you're a skeptic. I will give thanks to God with my whole heart. Some people have accused me, and I'm probably right. Sometimes I'm accused of working too much, overworking, and I know I'm in ministry and all that kind of stuff, and I, I kind of wonder, should I use this illustration to close or not? But there's a measure of truth to that. I probably work a little too much, and, and probably 40% of my motives are sinful um, on that. Yeah, I like, I like affirmation. I like accomplishing things. I like doing something that feels like it's worthwhile. But as I thought about this, it's always a risk to use your own life as an illustration. But if I look at and recount what God's done in my life and then what I've done for him, it's not balanced. Jesus Christ saved my life, redeemed my life. Some people look at me as if I'm a fairly nice guy. Some people don't, but some people do but I'm not that nice of a guy. And before I knew Jesus Christ, I was a lot less nice. He saved me. He redeemed my life from the pit. I remember being such an angry man. I thought, I don't care if, if there is a hell. I would rather go to hell than submit my life to anybody, including God, especially God. He's brought healing into our family. Verifiable healing three times. And not everyone's fully healed, but there's been healing in our family. He's brought back 
a daughter of ours who was far from God for 10 years, brought back, and her family has been reunited under Jesus. And maybe that's not your story right now. It wasn't our story three years ago. We weren't reunited then. And then the other thing, he's answered one of the biggest prayers of my life. A few years ago, we were in California at a, at a pastor's retreat center, whatever it was, and I remember I was feeling a little let down by God, and I climbed this mountain, and I sat there, and I complained to God, and I said, God, I was crying out to God, and finally I sensed God saying, and in fact, I heard God say in my spirit, my heart, what are you wanting? What have you been praying for? And I said, I want my life to matter. I want to make a difference. And he was silent. He says, hasn't it? And I realized that God's given me one of the biggest privileges of my life, that my life actually counts makes a difference. And I know I've screwed a lot of things up, hurt a lot of people. And I know this is, I know this is overdramatic, but I mean, I wouldn't want to die tomorrow, but if I died tomorrow, I'd have no regrets. I mean, there's some regrets on some of the small things, sure. I'd like to spend more time with my wife, my kids, on my motorcycles. <laughs> but if I weigh what God's done for me against what I've done for him, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. And it's worth it. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name. Almost high.